Radio Mano Papachango. friends uh and i mean that literally you are my friends whether we've met each other or not i'm so happy to have you on the other side of these cables today's episode is with a really interesting dude uh his name is theo rossi you might know him as uh what is it juice ortiz if you watch the show uh sons of anarchy he was on that uh for six years i think <clears throat> he's also on a show called Luke Cage, uh, but who gives a fuck? He's this, that's not why he's on the podcast. It's not uh, actor guy. It's because he's a really cool, thoughtful, smart, huge, open-hearted guy, huge-hearted. He's not a huge guy. He's a guy with a huge open heart is what I meant. Um, I've really enjoyed getting to know him. What happened was, I guess he listens to this podcast or he's read some of my books. I, I'm not sure exactly. Um, but he reached out to me and, um, you know, this is a time where I'm not doing a lot of podcasts, other people's podcasts. Uh, I'm sort of waiting for the paperback of civilized to death to come out and then I'll do uh, a bit of a, a media thing. But, you know, I've been sort of laying low working on my own stuff. Um, this podcast, obviously some other projects I have going on and, and just chilling after stressing on on getting civilized to death out. Um, but uh, I looked this guy up and I thought, man, this this guy sounds really interesting. Maybe I should make some time for this. And so we did a he, he's just started a podcast called Theory. Uh, get it? Theory. And uh so we did the podcast, but it was really early days. He was probably in his first 15 episodes or something. And he was working with a company and he was working with technology he didn't really like. And so we we did the interview and um, had a really good time. But in the end, he decided the sound quality sucked. And in the meantime, I was like, dude, we should get you on my podcast. So then we did one uh, on my podcast. And then he was like, can we do it again? Uh, now that I've got this technology worked out, and I guess he he got out of his contract with the company, so he's more independent now, um, which, as you'll see, he's the kind of guy who really does need to be independent. Uh, and so then we did it again, his again. So basically, uh, I'm releasing this today because he is releasing our conversation today as well, and we're doing some cross-promotional stuff. Now, I'm recording this on Saturday, May 30th, um, because I suspect that by June 6th, when this is going to be released, I will be in the middle of fucking nowhere with no Wi-Fi and no cell phone and nothing. So um, that cross-promotional thing may or may not work, but at least I can upload this and schedule it to be released on the 6th. So this will go out on the 6th, unless the world ends, you know, Things are happening so fast right now 
there anything can happen. I'm, I'm not taking bets on anything. But assuming that uh, the infrastructure remains intact for another few days, this will be released on the 6th, and you're hearing this on the 6th at the earliest. Um, Theo, yeah, I don't really need to say much more about him. He's he's an amazing dude. I uh, He then introduced me to his friend, J.R. Martinez, who is another just like, holy shit, um, amazing guy. I, I did a recording with him yesterday, so that'll be coming in the next few weeks. Um, I guess I'm not going to really talk a lot more because normally I do these intros and then I just sit down and upload it right away. So I'm speaking to you, you know, an hour before you hear this potentially. Um, whereas now, since it's a few days, I feel kind of, uh, I don't know, a bit, uh, inauthentic or something. I'm not sure. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, that I'm doing it the, the average way, the normal way or the not, not average or normal, just typical let's call it typical um all right so check out theo's podcast if you want to hear more of our conversation uh a conversation that's more you know him picking my brain rather than me picking his brain um it's called theory and uh you can find it where podcasts appear anywhere podcasts appear Uh, i'm going to play a special song today by a friend of the podcast um, Colin Cravero, uh, his band is called Sale Cassidy. And, uh, there's a beautiful, really beautiful video that goes along with this song. Uh, I'll put a link to that on my webpage and in the, uh, the show notes, you should get them in your podcast app or something. Hopefully you can just click straight through and check it out. I mean, I'm going to read the lyrics to you first though, because I think it's, um, it's very it's it's worth really paying attention. Um, Colin said to me that it's uh, it's about finding an old abandoned house and walking around from room to room, speculating who the inhabitants were, what they did, what they believed, and how they may have lived their lives. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. I certainly have. Hiking through the woods somewhere, and you come across this old abandoned house, and you walk through, and you see these random personal objects that have been sitting there for 30, 40, 50 years or more. I remember coming across a house like that in the desert out near Joshua Tree. There were still dresses hanging in the closet. Uh, There were still canned goods on the shelves. It's very strange to, to sort of walk into someone's, the echoes of someone's life like that. It's a, it's a strange experience, and, and it's an experience that makes you, I think, um, very aware of that dimension of time. You know, we're always moving up and down, left and right, forward, backward, but there's another dimension that we're just sort of moving through so gradually that we rarely really notice it. Uh, I talked about that. Um, experience of seeing the eclipse a couple of years ago in Oregon. That was, that was a moment where I really felt the passage of time because I felt it stop. You know, there was this jolt. It stopped for just a few, whatever it was, 90 seconds or something. And it just felt like the world stopped turning and wind stopped blowing and birds stopped flying and the light went out of the sky. And, and it was just this sense of like, whew, wow never noticed all that flow until it stopped, you know? 
Anyway, this um, poem, let's call it a poem because that's what it is, is Old Greenhouse by Colin Carvero. Old greenhouse with fake owls baked in solar flares, tinsel frost with clothesline cables and silvery pots and an old TV. No need for power, it had a good run. Oh, how these walls saw laughs and cries. Holy Bible, wooden chair, perched on fire, they didn't swear. Everybody wants to be who they wish they really were. Game show paint worn down, revealing the wooden remains of an old walkway, paced back and forth by various saints, while the wars raged on. Come home, they pleaded, it's taking too long. Oh, how this shed saw laughs and cries. Holy Bible, wooden chair, perched on fire, they didn't swear. Everybody wants to be who they wish they really were. Who were they? Who were they now? Hairspray lovers gonna carve your name. Smoked her reds while he lit her flame. Small town wedding with ambrosia stains. Who were they? Who were they now? Holy Bible, wooden chair, perched on fire, they didn't swear. Everybody wants to be who they wish they really were. Who were they? Who were they now? Again, the band is called Sale Cassidy. Yeah, everybody wants to be who they wish they really were. As long as you're getting closer to it, you're doing all right. All right. This is Old Greenhouse by Sale Cassidy. This episode, by the way, is brought to you again by Kettle and Fire. Kettle and Fire uh, make bone broth, and they ship it to you wherever you are, In at least in the United States. I don't know if they do international shipping or not, um, but uh, it's good stuff. They've got lemongrass and chipotle and uh, ginger and different interesting flavors or just straight up bone broth. It's all grass-fed animals. Um, And if you use, if you go to kettleandfire.com forward slash Chris Ryan, you get 15% off your first order when you use the code Chris at checkout. And I hope you do. If you make chili, try the chipotle stuff. That's, uh, I think I mentioned, that's what I use in my chili, and it's a nice addition. It really enriches. And the other nice thing to add to chili, if you're a chili maker, one of my secrets in my recipe is um, baker's chocolate. Throw in a few chunks of baker's chocolate. It adds a nice kind of savory, dark, rich, shadowy flavor to it, which I really like. All right, this is Old Greenhouse, by, written by Colin Crevero. The band is Sale Cassidy, and I uh, hope you'll check out the video as well. Thank you for listening, everybody, and I will talk to you again soon. Fake owls baked in solar flares, tin 
soul frost Clothesline cables and silvery parts And unknown TV No need for power at a good run Oh, how these walls all out of sand on fire they didn't swear everybody wants to be who they wish they Taking too long. Oh, how the shed's all out and crying. Holy Bible, wooden chair, burst on fire, faded and swell. This is working. Um, I am here, here being here in quotation marks uh, with Theo Rossi, uh, who I met, uh, what, a week ago or something when you had me on your podcast. I did. Yeah. The the debut of theory. Uh, We've been knocking out some episodes and I was fortunate enough to drag you into the into the world (laughs) of it. 
<laughs> I was happy to do it, man. Uh, and, and I think you started dropping the opposite, the episodes, what, this week? You've got the first last one week. Last, last week. week, we dropped two of them. We're doing like a solo one and then a sit down one, as I call it. And then this week, uh, today, actually, we just did a solo and a sit down one. And the solos are just rants about whatever's going on, uh, usually whoever knows how long. And then uh, the sit downs, I get to sit down with people who I um who I enjoy uh, or I enjoy their work and I get to know them like you. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I've been doing that for seven years now. Yeah. Great. Why did you decide to start a podcast now? And you're, I mean, I should say I'll, I'll do an intro. Uh, so people mm-hmm. will have heard me talk about you before they get to this point in the podcast. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, you obviously are a public figure. You've got a huge social media following. You're a working actor. You're in all sorts of stuff. Um, by the way, I did watch an episode of Sons of Anarchy the other night. Totally. Uh, I think it was the first episode of season four, because you said that's where you sort of... Season three it. is... Uh, see, yeah, episode three is when things go... Things it was get, the wedding. Oh, was, yeah. You got you to keep going, because things, things go downhill fast. <laughs> it's already pretty far down the hill as far as i'm concerned <laughs> with all that yeah. you know mayhem there at the end of the episode because they set you up right i didn't know any of these characters and yeah. so i'm watching it and it's like oh here's this guy like you know hey baby i'm gonna get out of this you know we're gonna take yeah. our kids and we're gonna have this great life and okay and then there's you know every and there all this joking and the camaraderie and everybody's cool and it's like yeah i can relate to these dudes this is all these are my kind of people. And then it's like, ah, murder, 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 murder. Yeah. I just started, I just started breaking bad while I was home. Cause I've never seen the show and That's I'm on funny. episode three and, um, yeah. Yeah, you know, listen, uh, I, the, the TV shows nowadays, especially something like sons, those are like a seven year commitment when they were on. And then, you know, to get in there, if you happen to get hooked, I guess it's almost like could be equatable to a good book. You want to go to that next chapter. Right. And, and it kind of takes over your brain. That age of television has kind of gone away a bit um, because now we're getting it all at once. But back then it used to be, and when I say back then, it's only a couple of years ago. It was like, you had to wait every week. Yeah. So you knew these people, they knew you, your audience knew you for seven years, eight years. So they, they become almost like they feel like you're part of their family. And uh, again, we don't really do that anymore. So yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's a fucked up family. And, uh, and uh, you know, I just had the the character who plays Tig. uh, He was in the first episode of uh, theory, the podcast, because he's just truly one of the few people in that crazy ass business that, um, I enjoy being around because um, mm. there's not many, but um, he's one of them. <laughs> yeah. You know, you mentioned, it's funny you mentioned Breaking Bad because I was thinking of Breaking Bad and my sort of my experience yeah. with it when I was watching that episode. Right. And you just said, you got to stick with it. And, mm-hmm. and I, I thought, okay, first I heard all the stuff about Breaking Bad, how great it was, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. And um, so I watched, an episode or maybe two i don't remember but but i remember there was this thing where there was a body and that's the body at. in a bathtub yeah, right with that's acid where I'm at right now <laughs> right? Yep. to try to yeah, get rid I'm of the right, body just watched it last night that's what okay I'm all right so you know exactly what i'm talking about yeah 
So the, yeah. the, 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 the body's in the acid and then the acid eats through the bathtub and the whole yep. thing comes through the floor and yep. there's like body parts and gore everywhere. And I'm I was there. like, fuck this. I'm not watching this. <laughs> yeah. Fuck it. It's just yeah. too much, you know? Uh-huh. And and so I stopped watching it. And then maybe a year or a year and a half later, and I kept reading, this is the best thing on television. This is so well written, so well acted. I'm like, all right, I'll 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 give it another try. I have now watched the entire Breaking oh, Bad cool. beginning to end twice. It's is the hype so, real? Is the hype it's real? It's so good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's totally real. And, and Better Call Saul is also fantastic. Same uh-huh. guys, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm so late to the game. You're in trouble. Yeah. I'm. And again, my wife isn't watching it with me. So I'm sneaking in these episodes when I can. And it's, um, again, I have like a story with breaking bad, just kind of how it was on sons. And we started at the same time, basically Hmm. I was doing sons the, the first year. It's like 2009 or whatever. And one of my best friends is the casting director of Breaking Bad. And she's ultimately responsible for my career. So in every way, she's responsible for my career. She gave me every shot that I've had. Her name's Sherry Thomas. She's an incredible, incredible person in the business. And we our careers were kind of the same. Her and casting, me and acting, like our trajectory of starting from the bottom and coming up. And she... Uh, she calls me up after my first year of doing Sons because they started like maybe right after us. And she says, um, there's this show on a network called AMC and it's about this teacher. He's a science teacher. And, and I had done an episode of Malcolm in the Middle. So I knew of Brian Cranston. And she said, um, I really want you to take a look at this character. And, you know, and I was like, no, listen, I'm on Sons. And uh, even though I'm only a guest star the first year, I knew that I was going to my goal was to be made a regular and, and become you know, a main part of the cast. And I was like, no. And she's like, no, 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 you really got to read it. You got to read it. It's amazing. I'm sending it to you. And I was like, no, I'm cool. And at the time I was also hanging out with Aaron a lot, the uh, Aaron Paul who plays, you know, cause oh, I yeah. just, I had just done a movie with his, uh, with his roommate at the time, this kid Shane and his other roommate, this kid, Chris, they had this big party house in the Hills. And, uh, and then, you know, sons and, Breaking Bad kind of did their thing and I, you know, stayed where I was and, you know, Aaron won uh, 800 Emmys. And, and was it uh, Je- so Jesse Pinkman was the role? Jesse Pinkman. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow, and I, wow. you know, I totally wasn't right for it at all in any way, but Sherry would call me in for everything. And it's funny the way the world works because that's happened on a few different things. And, you know, SOA became what it became and Breaking Bad became what it became. And again, at that time, we had so many of those shows. We had Breaking Bad. We had The Sopranos was just ending. We had The Wire. We had, uh, you know, Sons and, and Walking Dead was just starting. And it was like this TV revolution. Mm. And they were all those kind of shows, the body through the bathtub kind of shows. And you would go on these ride with these antiheroes. Yeah. Um, and it's a big commitment. So I'm, I think I'm probably what, 12, 13 years late to the game and I'm on episode three and I'm super excited. I don't know yeah. anything about the show. I don't, I've, I've stayed away from it all. So I'm excited to see what happens. Well, I, I think it's so clever because it takes that anti-hero um, genre that you're talking mm-hmm. about with the Sopranos and and these other shows Um and, and the wire, you know, mm-hmm. the, and what they're doing, all of them, I think, is they're 
what's revolutionary about them is they're subverting the good guy, bad guy thing, right? Where it's like, no, the good guy is the bad guy is a good guy. And the good guys are kind of bad too. Like, I don't That's know right. if you ever saw um, the shield. Do you ever see that show? My favorite, my favorite show ever. Those are the, Great so the guys, who, the guys who made the shield. Oh yeah. I saw there's stuff. one of the dudes. Yeah. Is, yeah. yeah and, oh, the same guy. And, the same. Yeah, the same, the number two on the shield, this guy, Kurt Sutter, uh, under Sean Ryan, producer, writer, or maybe, you know, just one of the executive producers, writers, you know, not necessarily the number two, because there was Chick and all these other guys. He created Sons of Anarchy. So Sean, the shield has such a giant influence that through the seven seasons, you'll see all the shield actors are on the show. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah I, and, I recognize the one guy, like a tall blonde dude, kind of yeah, a surfer yeah. looking guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He played Lem. He played Lem, Lem on the Shield. Right. Um, yeah, the the Shield is uh Vic Mackey, the anti-hero. Yeah. And and you gotta understand, Sons is based on Hamlet too. So there's like layers to these things. You know, mm. um I wish that I I don't I don't watch nearly as much TV at all. The the kids definitely put a wrinkle in that, the two little kids. Um but the the there was that wave that you just said of not violent television, but more like um, anti-hero, but real kind of like high stakes. Now it's a uh, it's not as much anymore. I mm. think it's kind of like it's kind of gone to a different place now, where it's um you don't really see things like the Shield anymore. Yeah, or the Wire, yeah. or Suns. Yeah. They're they're more like a sci-fi. You know, kind of uh, apocalyptic is big, especially now. Right. Um, so we'll yeah, see. and the kind of the the fantasy stuff, the you know Game Vikings and Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, what I was going to say about Breaking Bad that I think is so brilliant is that it takes that that formula, right? Where okay, Tony Soprano's not all bad, and we see his vulnerability with the therapist and. Or, you know, on The Wire, we see like the drug dealers are going to business school at night and they're taking Mm -hmm. care of their friends and, you know, um, and the corruption in the police force and all that. But with Breaking Bad, what it does is it it takes a good guy, like a really, really good guy and traces his migration into the darkness. That's what was so beautiful about it to me, you know. Darth Vader. It's like the Darth Vader story. Exactly. Yeah. We've, We've seen it. We've seen it in literature, we've seen it in television, we've seen it in films. And I think why that's so appealing to the human mind is everybody, what do they say? Everybody's one bad day away, right? We're all right. one bad day away. That We're one knock on the door away from what can happen. And it's that, one of my favorite films, Falling Down, right? With Michael Douglas. It's where like, mm. it's a great film and it's like the guy just snaps. And it's like, I think that what intrigues humans and people that I've seen is that anything is possible in a good and a bad way. Anything is possible. Right. And, and when we see these TV shows, I grew up with a lot of criminals, like a lot of criminals. And you mean in real life, the, in real life. And they're the nicest people I've ever been around, which hmm. is crazy because then you see what they get in trouble for. And you're like, what that, hmm. that person who, was sitting in the front pew at church or that person who has this amazing family. And, and then you, and, and then the people who aren't the criminals who are apparently the, the, on the up and up or the, the good people are some of the worst people I've ever met in my life. 
And maybe it's because they don't, maybe they don't know the reality of the high stakes, right? So what, what is that? When we go through a lot of bad things, we usually kind of have a more consistent and even personality because we un- we've seen the other side. Mm. And the ones who never see the other side are, they, they, they kind of just don't understand. There's no consequence to it. To right. Yeah. It's like small dogs that bark really loud. <laughs> yeah, I know that. They do it to my dog. I have a, I have a beautiful husky like wolf mix who I rescued years ago and he gets barked at by everyone. And I'm like, why do these little dogs? Yeah. What are you, what are you doing? Do you know this dog would eat you? Yeah. Why are you doing that? Yeah. I had a gig. I I lived in Manhattan for a while in the eighties and I, I worked for this really wealthy guy, total fluke. I don't know if you heard me talk about this on the podcast. I haven't talked about it for years, but uh, yeah, so I worked for this really wealthy guy, and and he um, hired me to be his um, representative on a construction project in Manhattan. So part of my job was dealing with the mafia dudes, right? Like, so once a month, I had to like hand them an envelope with I don't know twenty grand cash or something in it. I don't remember, um, but but it was so it, it was so interesting dealing with those guys because as you say. Like they were the nicest guys. They didn't just come by and say, where's the money? They would, you know, call me up and say, hey, uh, can you meet us for lunch today at uh, Luigi's? And, uh, you know, one o'clock, I'd be, yeah, sure, man. So I show up and, hey, so nice to see you. And, you know, hugs all around. And what are you having to drink? And what do you, that's on us, man. Luigi, bring him some more of the, and everything was just so like, friendly, friendly, nice to see you. And I just, you know, leave the envelope on the table and everyone's happy. Yeah. But, I equated yeah. to, I equated to like UFC fighters that I know, or, you know, right. cage fighters or boxers or, you know, people who are, you know, the, the, one of the, you know, black belts I train with, they're the nicest people in the world because they could be, they are not worried about, they have no, right. they don't have to posture. There's right. no peacocking because if, if shit hits the fan, they're going to be okay. They know how to disarm the situation. And I think that what I've grown in, in being around organized crime and gangsters and drug dealers and all that is like their propensity for violence. If it needs to be, they, they have it inside of them, right? Where someone else, you know, you always see that scene in the movie where someone goes, you're not going to pull that trigger, right? There's always that scene of the good guy holding the gun and the bad guy goes, you're not going to pull the trigger because they've never done it before. Right. Right. And, and I think that for me, when I'm around these people who have seen the underbelly, they usually are the nicest people because they got nothing to worry about. What are they going to worry about? That if you're not scared of, if you're not scared of dying and you're not scared of violence or you're not scared of any of that, why, why would you be worried about? That's awesome. Did you play poker by any chance? I used to, you know, I felt like it took too long. I never really, I tell you the day I stopped many years ago, this sounds ridiculous, but I was playing what felt like for a day, like overnight I was playing. Oh, online or something? No. And and we were in Vegas. It was actually all the guys from Suns or whatever. And someone said to me, how did you do? And I said, um, uh, good. I broke even. And then I thought, I just wasted like nine hours of my life. (laughs) And you're lucky. (laughs) Yeah. I could have slept. I could have like went for a run. I yeah. I played poker for nine hours and I'm happy that I broke even. Yeah, that was yeah. stupid. So I I never uh you know I'll play craps if I got it. But no, but I do understand the game well. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't like Texas Hold'em and these very mathematical games because I am i don't have that kind of brain. I can't remember <laughs> what's yeah. what cards have been played and what the odds are. I don't do that. For me, it's all the psychology. I just love like looking for the tells and having a sense mm-hmm. when someone's lying and bluffing. I, like I like that shit, you know, mm-hmm. and, and this talk about, you know, gangsters and big dogs and small dogs. And all, it was made me think about poker. Like if you're holding a full house, you're not going to make a big show. No. Right. You know, it's like if you, yeah. if you got the, I don't know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a sort of a general quality of life. You know, the, if the people with the biggest speakers in their car generally have the worst taste in music. Yeah. And I think that's the psychology, the psychology of what I found with people in general, why I talk so much about anxiety and depression and all that stuff is if you're a human living on this planet and being bombarded 24 seven through all the channels of news and environment and people, and just in general existing, you suffer from some version of anxiety and depression. It's just, it's just part of the game, right? Yeah. So it's not about suffering from it. It's saying that and it's confronting it and going, okay, I have this. I, it doesn't make me weak to admit it. Now the question is, how do I exist with it, right? As opposed to being like, everything's great. I'm fine. The world yeah. is amazing. Yeah. And I think those people scare the hell out of me because I'm like, no, it's not, right? Now, I'm not saying that you have to question everything and always, always be a skeptic. But what I'm saying is that if you admit it and you lean into it, it makes you more comfortable with yourself. So what I mean by that is I find myself around all these other humans who are so nervous about looking weak and so nervous about looking like, you know, their anxiety might come out or that they're insecure about their looks or they're insecure about, you know, their sexual urges or anything, whatever is going on in their life, they're insecure about it. And it comes out in their daily, uh, the way they interact with every other human on the planet because they're always hiding something. And right. if you're hiding something, whether it be as small as like a look, the way you feel in a certain thing you're wearing, if you're hiding something, you're never going to give a true sense of yourself to the person you're speaking to. Right. So, and and you're wasting a lot of energy on the cover up that so you could much be energy. using, you know, paying attention. Yeah. I, I often think, you know, one of the things I learned, you know, sort of you know, I'm 58 now. And so I kind of look at my life and say, oh, learning that lesson was a big step in maturity, you know? Mm -hmm. And what you're talking about is one of them, recognizing that courage is not the absence of fear, right? Courage is you have the fear, you admit you have the fear, but you do whatever you need to do anyway. Mm -hmm. And I think so many people are thinking, yeah, I'll be courageous when I no longer have this fear. Nah, dude, you're always going to have the fear. You just accept it and move on. It's the admitting, it's the admitting to it. You know, I, I spoke with a guy yesterday on the podcast, uh, Andy Slavitt, who used to be the former, you know, head of healthcare uh, for one of the administrations and Medicaid and Medicare and all that. And he's been really at the front lines of everything that's going on. And he said, if anybody is up there speaking about the current state of the world and they don't ever once say, I don't know, don't believe them. Yeah, because right. no no one has any idea what's going on, right? And if you don't have that, you, there's a way to portray you know that leadership, but you can admit that you don't know everything. That's okay. The pompousness comes from people who admit that they know everything, 
and I have, I've seen a lot of people in my life, some within, you know, my family who are know-it-alls and it drives me nuts because there's nothing you can bring up that they don't have. They know everything about it. And you're like, but you've never even written a book. How do you know everything about writing a book? Or how do you know everything about podcasts? You've never done one. Or how do you, but they seem because they've read it. Oh, I read it. I know everything. And I only look for people that to surround myself with that are like, Hey dude, like I'm, I made a lot of mistakes and I'm just figuring it out as I go and I'm trying to enjoy my life. That that's, that's, that's my new thing. As I get older, I can't, I don't suffer fools lightly anymore. I just can't do it. I just don't have it in me. And well, you, um, you it don't took have me a time. long time for that. You don't have time. Yeah. I mean, you don't, in your case, you don't have time cause you're getting older and cause you got kids, you got, you got two little boys who really need your time. So why would you waste it on some, you know, yeah, so so let's let's talk about your family. You grew up is it Staten Island or Yeah, you know, my family Brooklyn and then uh and then went to Staten Island. Um, you know, there was that migration in the 80s of everybody trying to get out of apartments and trying to get out of these, you know, semi-attached places and you know, Brooklyn was becoming kind of super crowded and overrun. So a lot of different people went in the mid 80s to kind of start uh everybody being together or the early eighties, whatever you want to look at it as. And then um, Staten Island became this uh, suburban New York city in a way uh, and became like more like spread out. And it was a really interesting place because there was also a tremendous amount of organized crime people who went there to kind of get away from the, the, the police in a way. So it was just a really uh, strange place to grow up in. And I had no, I had my only goal in life was what I was told from a very young age was to make money. I was told that if you made money, everything was okay. I know I'm not the only person in the world that was told that. I was told it doesn't matter what you do, you've got to make money. Mm-hmm. And what, and, but they never told you what to do after you made the money. They just told you to make it because a lot of people had never seen the other side of making money. They just saw making it and maintaining that. And I've always kind of looked at a lot of people who come from families who are generational wealth because they kind of have figured out money maybe more as it gets down and down the the road. With me, it was, you know, my father had gone to jail. You know, he had gotten in trouble. He was involved with all the wrong things. Him and my mom split up when I was super young. And I was... In, in the same way I was told to chase money, I also was like, man, this money thing seems to be a problem. <laughs> it seems to be terrorizing people and they're getting divorced and who's going to kill who and who's going to do this. And and I'll never forget one of the things that really messed me up was I was 14 and um, my birth father, who's no longer with us, I found out he died on the internet in 2009 when I went to search and search for him. He... um. He 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 owned this store on like and uh, in, in this place in in this area in Staten Island that had some foot traffic, a lot of foot traffic. And um, I all of a sudden I got this call and my mother was like freaking out. And I guess he had robbed the dry cleaners next to it, this place because he had a store and then he had I guess robbed the dry cleaners. And when he got caught, he tried to blame me. Ooh, I was fourteen. And he tried to put it on me and said, well, my son was here and let me talk to him. And that was his way of kind of getting out of it. Right. And yet they were going to come and arrest me because at this time they were doing JD cards and YD cards and you could still get 
and I guess my mom set him straight or whatever it was, but that was the normal for a lot of us where that was, it was very like, you're in the middle and you could be lower and then some years you'd be in the middle, but you know, the, 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 the upper didn't seem too far away. So it was kind of where America, where things were a lot closer, you could jump from lower to middle to, to, Oh, we're in the upper for a minute. Someone's got a Mercedes and Oh, they're back to the middle. And uh, now they're going to, and that was kind of the definition of that Island. And then just the propensity for violence. Like everybody was fighting at a very young age. It was just one thing you always knew you had to do. And uh, listen, I, I, I have so much, uh, I'm so grateful to my childhood because I grew up before the internet. Um, I was fortunate enough to, you know, I'm born in 1975. So I was a young kid in the eighties and, and then the early nineties, which was such a cool time. There was so much going on and so much was happening. Um, and it was pre-98 where the internet started coming and then really, you know, 2000, 2001, where it became really such a giant part of our lives. Um, so we've we've been fortunate enough, you and I, to live in two different worlds, you know, that a lot of people haven't. So it was a kind of a, it was just a bit of a weird childhood. Um, I suffered, I've always said my entire childhood is defined by loss. It felt like I was always losing anyone uh, via death or walking out or something. And I think it defined me and it's defined everything I've done in my career. I had no, no ambition ever of being an actor. Um, I didn't know anyone that was an actor. I would never even think about being an actor. Um, and it just changed. I was, uh, go ahead. Were, were you raised by your mom then? Yeah, my mom and, and then my uncle kind of, uh, who was estranged from the family because my grandfather had died when my mom was 15 and my uncle was 21 and my uncle took off to Northern California and became like a rockabilly hipster and, you know, was selling crystal meth. And, you know, then he was like a prison guard at San Quentin. Then he was in San Quentin as a prisoner. And oh, he just was just this, yeah, he was just this, uh, it's crazy as it sounds. He lived in a trailer. He was an amazing dude. And he moved back to New York uh, probably when I was like 17 and he became like a de facto, you know, uh, male figure to me. Like, and I just, he had no money. He said that money had terrorized him his whole life. He had had a quadruple bypass. He had really bad diabetes and, you know, um, and he just became my, my, um, a, a lesson for me in life. Cause he had done so much. He was traveling for like 20 something years. And, and my mom was just trying to do what she could to keep us good, you know? And then, uh, you know, my Nana lived with us, my, her mother until we were 14, she died. Um, and then my stepdad came along he's a really good dude, you know, polar opposite of my, of my birth father, like literally the polar opposite. Nice guy. Um, one of those 15 minutes early guys, every time, everywhere, you know, just always on time, always, always prepared. My father was one of those like three day late guys, you know, might not show up at all. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, and then I just did what I did. And, and, and then, you know, it's, it's too long of a story, but acting hit me at a super late age. Um, I moved out to LA and I got there October 31st, 99. I moved out with my five best friends. Um, we took two cars, took us 11 days. Um, the whole thing was a bit of a blackout. 
and uh, for a multitude of reasons. And, and uh, so you, were, you were 24. 24. Uh, no, I was I was 23 when we were on the trip. Yeah, 24. I turned when I got, when I got there a couple why, months later. Why LA? I mean, you're so embedded in New York. You got all your family there, your friends there. What? Why LA? What happened? Because it was different back then. So the way it worked back then was if you wanted to do TV was not looked upon highly. You know, if you wanted to do theater and maybe one or two, like if you wanted to be a guest star on like a Law and Order, I don't even know if Law and Order was around actually. It was probably like uh, NYPD, was, yeah, but, that was, <laughs> but, that was, but that was filming in LA. That's one of the first shows I did that wasn't uh, even filming. Oh, really? You did that? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. They fil- I, I did a small role on that. Oh, you with, were you a kid? You were. Yeah. I was, well, I was 24, but I was playing like 16. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 uh, I got to work with Dennis Farina. I was so excited. But it, what really threw me off was they filmed in LA. I was like, NYPD Blue films in LA. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's all fake, man. It's all fake. Everything's <laughs> fake. That was in like 2001. And, and um, no, I, I knew that if I was going to do this, because when I committed to it, just like anything I do, when I commit to something, I go all in. I'm, I'm, I'm particularly relentless when it comes to something I want to do. And with that, I knew nothing about acting. I knew nothing about the business. And I studied uh, pretty much every single thing about the history of Hollywood and the history of acting and the history of movie making and filmmaking. And I embedded, you know, I just literally was taking everything in. And I knew that if I was going to do it correctly, I had to be in Los Angeles. So my friends right, so you, and I. So you uh, knew you went. wanted to act at that point. You were like, that's. That, yeah, it, it yeah. happened pretty quickly. It happened, uh, the turnover of it was. Um, the turnover from going from what I was doing, hustling and doing anything to make money and selling dope and, you know, kind of figuring out how to get, how to, what, what was I going to do in my life um, to going, yeah, fuck, I'll, I'll try acting. Um, it happened very quickly. Like how literally from you? the second, 23. Oh, oh, really? So it was right there. Hey, yeah, oh, yeah, literally yeah. right away. So how did it come? How did it appear? You saw a movie and you're like, fuck, I want to do that. Or an offer came up or. No, no, I was, I was literally, uh, uh, so I was, I got out of, when I was in college, when I went to school, I went to college at the the university of Albany. I thought I was going to go to play football. That was because I played football in high school and a bunch of my friends had gone up there and, and, and it just didn't work out for, for many, many reasons. It just didn't work out. Uh, you know, I came from a school where we lost like two games in the four years I was there, we won the state championship. And then I was going to a school that winning wasn't really a big thing. And this was right when the grunge era hit. And I was reading a lot of Bukowski and I was reading a lot of like Henry Rollins books. And I was drinking a lot of coffee and I was smoking a lot of cigarettes. And I was in that (laughs) fuck the world kind of thing. right? Right. You know, I was, you know, this was right at that era where, we were questioning everything, right? It was like Nirvana and helmet and fuck the system kind of deal. And everything felt like a system to me. I was like, I'm not doing anything. So I dropped out of college and I, uh, I went back to Staten Island and I started working as a waiter and I rebuilt a 68 Mustang. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do for my life. Like, I'm just, I'm making, I'm making money. These suckers are in college. They're spending money. I'm making $600 a week as a waiter. 
and a busboy, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to save money, and I'm going to buy a restaurant. I didn't know what it was going to do. And then my buddy's mom, who passed away, uh, she was working at a company called Bear Stearns back in the day. She was like a boss in all ways. She said, you really, you're really not going to go back to school because I was already been out a semester. And I said, no. And she's like, listen, I, I said, it's not for me. I don't care. I read books on my own. Like, I don't need to go to school. And, and I, I was the one paying for it. So I had to get, you know, um, mm, loans and, and right. all. Like, I, I, it just, it seems stupid. And she told me, listen, if you go back, you need to go back just for the camaraderie, the people, like just to learn, to be, to grow up, you know, to just be on your own and pay bills and do laundry and like, just be hmm. on it. And I just, she convinced me to do it. And I said, I'll give it a shot. But she said something to me that was really interesting. She said, if you're going to go back, everything you did the first semester the you know, the drinking espresso and smoking brown cigarettes and, you know, and, and, and literally reading, you know, any of the most obscure Nietzsche and anything, you, just, just try to let up on that. Like, just try to be with all your friends because all my friends were there and they were just being wild and crazy. And I went back and I kind of changed my attitude and it wasn't too long after I went back, like maybe like a month and a half, somebody came up to me and said, um, oh, you know, all these people, you know, blah, blah, you, you ever think about selling weed on campus? And I was like, oh, you know, if I can make money, I'll do whatever. So I did that. And then I graduated to selling uh, much bigger, uh, more intense um, drugs. And and that became my life. Like I wanted to be a perfectionist at that. So that became my existence. I didn't really care about much else. Like I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And it was kind of like that was all of our mindsets up there. But long story short, when I got out of that, I had no discernible skills except for that. I didn't know anything else. So either I was going to go back to New York City, which was very different than upstate New York. And now if I'm going to do that in New York City, well, now you're talking jail time becomes more real. Gunplay becomes more sure. real. Yeah. Everything becomes more real. And I knew I was ready to do that. And then what happened was it was one of my last times uh, up at the school. I was at a party and it was one of these like kegs and eggs things where it was like one of these ones where it just started in the morning and people started drinking, you know, early in the AM and, and uh, the party had gotten raided by these cops and I had no shirt on and, I was being crazy. And the cops, one of the cops raided the party, said, arrest him. He looks like he lives here. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I told the cop. I said, how does someone look like they live somewhere? And I realized that was the worst thing I could have said to that cop at that moment. Because then I got brought in. But what was so smart, whether there was an angel on my shoulder, whatever, is they threw me in the drunk tank and not the, the actual holding cell which means they didn't take my shoelaces or my belt or anything like that, like they usually do. And when I got out that later that day, whatever it was the next day I had, I had taken my socks off. And at the time I had like these no show socks on and I had a bunch of, uh, of stuff on me. And I knew that I could have gotten in so much more trouble. And I knew at that moment that, 
I had to change things. So I went back home and um, my mom was had this dress company that she still has, which is amazing. She does all these handmade dresses and the internet was starting to come up. So I was like, oh, maybe I'll help her. I know a thing or two about computers. So I started trying to help her. I realized this wasn't going to go anywhere. Like, what was I going to do? So I was just trying to figure things out. And then, uh, you know, one of my buddies, you know, was uh, he was working for a pharmaceutical company. He was taking acting classes, you know, uh, for a couple of reasons, but also probably to get better at public speaking. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, going door to door with pharmaceuticals and all that. Rolled into that class to uh, because there was a bar next door and there was all these like girls and stuff and everybody used to go to the class and then everybody go to the bar. And I was like, this sounds like an amazing plan, you know, and uh, and and I did that. And right away, uh, this guy came in and I'll never forget him. He came in to cast this independent film called Born at the Wrong Time about this young drug dealer and this old drug dealer. And the teacher at the time said, you should talk to him. And I said, about what? And she said, you should just talk to him and tell him your story. And, you know, maybe uh, something can happen with the film. I said, I have no idea. I don't even know what acting is. I had never done a scene in front of the class. I had mm. just sat in the audience. Mm. I had never done I had never done anything. And I talked to the kid and I got the role. And I was like, holy shit, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm doing. Um, did you audition? And, uh, and, no. No audition? Just talking, just, no. Just be, and just, did you talk about your experience that you'd actually yeah, lived yeah, the role? Yeah, I talked okay. about my life. Yeah, okay, I just talked right. about my life. And I got the movie and um, that was it. I was hooked. Like, like, like literally for lack of a better word, like a drug, I was hooked. And so I was you like, were, you were one of the leads. You were I the was, the, yeah, dealer. it was me and yeah. my brother with the two leads. Yeah, oh, your the brother. Kid, okay. my brother, the kid uh, who plays my who brother. played your brother. Okay. Not yeah, your... yeah. 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 It was the story. It was like an American history X, but about uh, drugs. So he comes out of jail and I'm the young brother who started selling. The movie never came out, never finished, got made, you know, and, uh, but I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to do this. I, what was it, what can, was your first day like when you showed up on set that first day? What, fear. What, yeah, I'll bet. Yeah. But fear. once you got once you got into it, did you feel like, was there some kind of like natural comfort with it that you recognized? Or how did you know, like, yeah, this is for me. I, I like this. So it always happens. It always happens. It still happens in projects with one moment, meaning that my default mechanism as a human being is that I... I want to make everybody else comfortable. And, I, and I'm trying to get away from doing that because it's not really beneficial for people in their life. But I, I was nervous that I was going to mess up the movie and that right. this guy had made a wrong choice. Right. And I, you know, here I am, you know, whatever it was, 22, 23 at the time, playing like 17. And, you know, I'm, I'm up in Westchester shooting this film. And I remember driving up and I just didn't know anything. I just, I kept looking at the script and thinking if I memorized it anymore, maybe that would help me. And uh, I, I think at the time, I, I think I plucked my eyebrows or something. I don't know what was happening, but things just got weird. And I was so – I didn't know what was going on. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so I got up there and he was, you know, he was so cool with me. And he was just being really cool, this young director. And then what happened was there was a moment where the kid was playing my brother who had done other stuff. I know he had done Broadway stuff and he had done some small films. So he had a much better handle on this business i knew nothing about it but there was a scene where he was yelling at me and it brought up all this stuff inside of me Mm. yeah and i had a like the realest moment i've ever had almost to this day as an actor where it was so real that for a second like reality escaped my lenses and it became my life yeah 
And it was like I got hit with the the like a shot of of an adrenaline that I had never gotten, and I would I still to this day have I've searched for it now, and it's almost like it's that's why this game is an unwinnable game, because that moment was so incredible that I was like I want to do this for the rest of my life. I want to mm-hmm. feel that. Right. I want to feel how real that felt. And I went back and I explored every single thing with that, you know, with, with, uh, you know, all these different teachers like Stanislavski wrote these books and Lee Strasberg, the school I was going to. And I wanted to explore what that was, the sense memory of my own life and all this. And I went on this quest to chase that forever. Um, and, uh, I knew at that moment I was going to do it. So if I was going to do it, there could be no plan B. Mm -hmm. I was going to do that and never have a follow-up plan. And what I've found is that every single person I've seen successful in anything in life doesn't have a plan B. And, and on the flip side of that, all the people who have had a plan B have never done plan A. They end up with plan B, yeah. You end up with what you settle for, no doubt. Yeah, and 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 that. so that was the moment, and we moved to L.A., and you know, I went back to my old ways. I had to figure out ways to make money. I was, you know, working as a waiter. I was, you know, doing whatever I could to make money. I was working as a bar back. I was doing whatever I could. And then, and then I just started chipping away. You know, I did, I did extra work to get my SAG card. And I, and then I had one line on Malcolm in the middle. And then I had one line in this small movie. And then I had a bunch of lines in an episode of, you know, uh, without a trace or whatever. I was on every show bones and all these other shows. And then you know, I did an episode of Lost and then I did, you know, and I just started moving up and up. And then in 2008, my entire life changed, Sons of Anarchy. And literally, you know, it 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 was like my whole life had led to that moment because my uncle, who was such an integral part of my life and was with me through everything, he uh, he used to ride with all these biker gangs in Northern California and his, his main stories were about them. So when that sh- when that show came up, right, I went, oh my god, this is this is it. This is yeah. what I'm supposed to do. And I auditioned for every single role in the show and didn't get any of them. Hmm. I didn't get any of them. It wasn't until the show was fully cast, you know, whatever it was, two weeks later, that I got a call, and they said, you know, it was from the guy from Kurt. And I'll always be indebted to him my whole life. He called me up and he was like, listen, I don't know if you're going to have one line or a hundred. I don't know if you're going to be in one episode or a hundred. I want you on the show. I have no idea what the role is going to be. Um, I'm going to figure it out. That's fucking and, uh, great. That's and so I cool. took the shot and it changed my entire life. It changed literally yeah. my, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be here on the phone with you I, or, or, or on the screen, I should say, or on the headphones. I wouldn't be doing any of this. And it was, and there's so much more to the story, but it felt like almost like Truman show ass, like everything was being placed and that I, that I was starting to see them more. And I was starting to be aware of not just the signs, but of the way things were going. And, you know, I didn't have a plan B and I still don't, you know? Uh, and that's why now when I'm, I'm trying to get towards more things like this, where I can associate myself with people who, who are uh, more comfortable and and want to do and, and want to express and want to speak and want to go into these long form conversations about things. Cause I think they're few and far between now. Right. Has, is your uncle still alive? No, he's so crazy story. Um, There's a moment when I knew that this was going to be my career. 
2004. Um, I had gotten a movie. I had, I had spent all my money. I had no money left that I had made from doing commercials. I did a lot of commercials and I had done uh, a bunch of guest stars and co-stars on TV shows. And at that point it was like Boston public and, Oh, William you know, Shatner and uh, uh, no, no, uh, uh, I forget who it was. Boston, was it, no, Boston. Oh, it's Boston, Boston Legal. Boston Legal. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there were two of them at the same time. There were two right. at the same time. Right. Boston Public was uh, this one about this high school, and uh, uh. and um, I'd done that, and I'd done just small, small roles on these shows. I'd done Veronica Mars, like all these shows, and then, but I'd gone to Backpack in Europe, and I had no, I had no money left. I was done, finished, and I was sitting in. Uh, I think it was Prague and I knew I had nothing and I was partying and didn't care about anything. And I didn't need anything. I had like two changes of clothes and I just didn't care. I used any money I had to get there. And the kid who I was with was on a very popular TV show at the time. So he had all the money and I had none and never once did he give me any, he would rather see me starve. Um, but that's a whole nother story. Um, and, uh, so we had separated and, uh, I got a call that I'd gotten this movie for ESPN. It was this movie called Codebreakers based on this scandal that happened in West Point. I think it was whenever it was this cheating scandal when Army Navy days were big in like the 20s or 30s or 40s. I'm probably wrong. My memory is terrible at this point. And only what acted. And um, I, when they made the offer of what the money was, I was like, oh, my God. It's the most money I've ever heard of in my life. It's nothing now. But it was like at that point, I had, I had been literally doing anything to get by. And it just seemed like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm going to – that could last me forever. Like I could retire. And, and it, again, now it's, it's so little. But to me, it felt like so much. And I called you know, my uncle. He was living in New York. And everyone was so excited. So I went to Canada to do the movie when I got back and I was there for a long time. I think it was like three months. I was in Toronto and all around Toronto area. And he used to write me letters because he was terrible with the phone. He had the flip phone. He didn't know how to text and all that. So he'd write me handwritten letters to the hotel I was in. And I'd get these letters and I have them all laminated and, and, and framed and all that. And, um, and uh, in the last letter, he used to call me a uh, son and I'd call him pop. And he said, um, uh, just remember, even in death, I'll always be with you. And he sent the letter and I got the letter. And uh, it was the rap party of the movie. And I was, you know, being crazy like I always was. Rap parties were crazy then. And I was with the rest of the cast of this, you know, crazy movie. And uh, I got a phone call and they said he died. And I had just gotten that letter. And here I am at the rap party of the thing that him and I always dreamed of and talked about and that like I was going to do. And he would make these jokes of like, we're going to get a boat and we're going to do this and I'm going to be your driver. And he would say all these things. I don't even really like boats, but he loved them. And, uh, and it was another transition for me. And I went, oh my God, one thing starts, one thing ends. Yeah. And uh, that propelled me to a dark place, but it also propelled me in another way to really kind of kick up everything. Um, so that was a, uh, he passed that day. Um, and yeah, I still have all those letters and, and it's pretty amazing what he wrote in them and how, uh, he died in his sleep. Uh, you know, he died, uh, overnight. It's beautiful. When you were telling that story, I, I got this image of him kind of carrying you across the river 
<laughs> you know, and and, one, and once you were on the other side, you know, you were you were there now, and he could go. Yeah. you know, like he did his job. He got you there somehow. I I feel like that with a lot of with a lot of things that have occurred to me, and you know, it might sound weird to some people, but I just did this entire podcast episode, literally thirty minutes. Uh, long on dogs because I've never lived a day in my life without dogs and they've been like a season of my life and I can almost remember the part of my life with yeah. what dog was there yeah yeah they're chapter markers for sure and and they had and and I you know I go into why they're so important to me and how they've dictated my life but I could look at that as many sections of my life of what mm. they've done and what you just said that carrying across the river you know it's funny I've thought about that that I needed him to get me to that place. And then he was finished. Right. Right. With me. And, you know, there's so much tragedy that went on, you know, his, his daughter, my cousin, she OD'd on heroin. And, and, you know, there was just so much stuff that came after it. um, That, that was the result of that loss. And I, it's funny now that I look at, even when I found out, you know, my, my birth father died online in 09 and that was another chapter of propelling me to that next thing because that led me to change everything in my life, like all my habits, all my, my the way I went about living life. And I feel like in some way or another, I'm at that next impasse right now because the truth is um, the business I got into with acting is not the business that it is now. It's not by no means knocking the business. You have to understand it's just different. Just like how black and white movies were different than color movies and just like mm. how talkies were different than silent films. We are in a different era of the business. And what you're seeing is that you have to be, be almost a different person. So a really long segue to your first question of why I'm doing podcasts. Um, <laughs> yeah. I search for connection yeah. in anything I do. And I need connection. And I need, with connection, I need to learn. And you told me when you and I did our podcast that most of your friends, pretty much every single person you speak to is through the podcast world now because you're having these long, heart-to-heart kind of conversations with people, which is the block, is the beginning, is the foundation of any good friendship. We don't get to do that in life. We surely don't get to do that in acting because you're with people for a certain amount of time, usually on location. Everything's, you know, roses and wine, and then it's over and you walk away and you go back to your life, especially if you have a family and kids. Very rarely do you stay in touch Mm. um, unless you're on a long, unless you're on a long TV show. I, so with this, why I needed to do a podcast is I found that one, I'm really interested in so many very different things. And there's too many sources out there. I got to go to the tip of the spear. I need to, if I want to learn about something, I want to talk about to someone who's an expert at it or has a a know-how of that. And two, just for that general connection that we're not getting in life anymore. Yeah. Because all we do is text. Um, We very rarely speak on the phone. So so you don't, like when you're on set, I I imagine when I sort of, imagine movies being made i imagine like you said you're don't thr- lie you're an actor you've done acting we all know about it don't only lie. only porn dude only porn. <laughs> fully clothed <laughs> best actor best actor award best non-sex performance 
<laughs> Which so I, I swear, if I if I live long enough and get around to it, I'm going to write an erotic memoir of my life, and it's going to be called "Best Non-Sex Performance." <laughs> It's a great, great title for a book. I'll tell you what, dude. In high school, I was not voted most likely to win a porn award. Let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> but just in general, as, as a mirror of life, best, best non-sex performer is kind of a really great title for a book. It in, is. In it's, it's so just, many different ways to look at it. Yeah, it's a great phrase because it's like, you know, it's like you're the you're the best at not doing the thing everyone's here to do. You know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. like, it's so close to losing. You know what I mean? It's like an award for, you know, best person who didn't finish the race or something. I don't know. It's a weird. Yeah. And, and you're, and you're taking into account, like you're being, you know, uh, super supportive of, you know, non-gender labels. They're, they're non, you're the best non-sex. It's like, there's so many, there's so many ways in that title that are incredible. That I, you know, yeah. Yeah. It works. Um, but what I was going to say is like, when I imagine being on, on set, I imagine these really deep, almost like I traveled a lot, you know, I backpacked mm-hmm. a lot when I was uh, younger and you'd, you know, you'd form these really intense f- friendships with somebody, you know, here we are, we're like, you know, two weeks together in Rajasthan and these incredible, you know, no one else around, like really bizarre area, super intense friendship. And then he's going to Nepal. I'm going to Sri Lanka, never see him again. But man, that two weeks was a really intense friendship. I sort of imagine being on a movie sets like that. You know, you hear about all these romances that start on movie sets and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but you're saying it's not that way or. No, that that is exactly how it is. Oh, That's okay. Exactly okay. So you do get the connection when you're there. It's just that later she goes on, he goes on. A hundred percent. But when you go in, you go all in because now right. it's almost like, it's almost like um, meeting someone from your neighborhood. You're like, Oh my God. Hey, how are you? Hey, what's going on? All right. You understand. I understand this happened. This happened. This happened. This is crazy. You know, you could talk shit about this. You can talk good about this. And you, you're in this protected bubble of you both understand each other, right? You're mm-hmm. both in this crazy, unpredictable business. Right. Things that, you know, other people don't understand on the outside. You guys understand together, sometimes even your own spouse or your own family doesn't understand it. And now you get around this, you have this immediate camaraderie, right? And then it's like, oh, you worked with so-and-so and and you worked with so-and-so and and, oh yeah, me too. And now you're linked, right? So now let's say it's a couple of months and it's dinners and hanging and and in those dinners, you're going deep. Like, you know, it's about this and you're giving, you're really given the whole soul. And then as you start getting towards the end of the project, it's like, man, I, I can't wait to get home to my kids. I can't wait to get out of here. This has been going on. And, you know, especially if it's a bad shoot. And then it's like, yo, man, I'll call you. If I'm in LA, I'll do this. Or, you know, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, no, 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 no. and then the group tech stop and then it's over with. Hmm. So, you know, what you, as you get older, you know, and if you read Paul Newman's book, you know, it's, it's, he says it a lot. It becomes this thing where you can have all of me when I'm in there. You can have all of me when we're in. Right. But the second they call cut, the second they call the day, I'm out. I'm yeah. done. I have my family. I have my life. And I've become better of when I was younger, doing movies in New Orleans, doing movies in Pro, uh, on, uh, uh, where was I recently? Bulgaria and, you know, going to all these different places. Canada, you, you get engulfed with people. 
And especially when it's an ensemble cast, there's a lot of people, you, you know, everybody tribes up and everybody's doing their thing. And then it ends. Yeah. And you're lucky. You're lucky if on 10 projects, you come out with like one friend that you're going to be cool with. Yeah. And it's just because you've given it all, you've spilt it all, but then real life is there waiting. So there's heartbreak in that. 100%. Huge heartbreak. Huge. I'll tell you what's bigger is the, when I was younger, the uh, hangover of it. Mm. Because you come back and you realize that life is not like that. You know, you got to understand people are picking you up. They're bringing you things. There's this, there's, there's this, they're doing your makeup. They're, they're, they're getting you ready. You're, you know, yeah. you're, you're a bit of the center of attention. If you're the lead, you're, you're in a, you're in a world that predominantly exists around you. Yeah. And then what happens is as I got older and I really experienced this on sons with all these, you know, these older actors, not, not so much in a way, they were just all so much more experienced than me is what they taught me was this is great. It's going to end. Don't get too attached. And as I started seeing that from some of my great mentors, the Jimmy Smiths of the world, Alfred Woodard and, you know, and Luke Cage and, and all these people who I said, I look up to them, Kim Coates and, you know, Michael Chiklis and, you know, who played Vic Mackey on The Shield. Like I literally talked to these people and they're like, family, your life, your friends, your, your base at home. That's what you want to put your attention towards. And I now, it now has become such a job to me that when I go in, I would much rather hang out with the crew. Um, and, and the camera guys and the lighting guys and the grips and, and, the, and the transpo guys, then I really would the actors. Cause it's more of just like, Hey, how you doing? I want to do my job. You do your job and I'm going to go home. And again, it's not, it's not a bad thing. It's just that you understand now the game. It's almost like you see the end of the maze. You go, I know how I'm coming out of this. So, so there's no reason for this. Yeah. You mentioned Paul Newman. Um, I was at a, a dinner party a couple months ago and I met a guy and got to talking to him. And eventually I'm going to, he agreed to be on the podcast. Um, uh, but uh, he met Paul Newman's daughter in college and they started going out and she was using a different name, I think. And nobody at the college knew that she was Paul Newman's daughter. He didn't maybe know. Maybe Woodward. Maybe she was using his uh, wife's maiden name. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, but anyway, they so they became a couple, and and eventually she told him, "My dad's an actor," and he's like, "Yeah, okay, I think I've heard of him. You know, whatever." He the guy wasn't into movies, and he uh, this guy was raised at an orphanage in New York. Um, you know, scholarship to go to this college in, in Maine, I think it was. Um, anyway, he went home with her for the summer and, uh, he was working around the house and he and Paul became really good friends. And, um, one day he was working, he was, he was, you know, I don't know, fixing something or whatever. And Paul came by and they were talking and, and Paul said, uh, Hey man, you know, I have this watch, this Rolex that my wife gave me a few years ago. At Daytona. I think it was. Yeah. And he said, uh. Uh, she just gave me a new one, and uh, instead of just throwing this in a shoebox, I thought maybe you'd like it, and he gave it to the guy. Wow. Yeah, so it's this Rolex, beautiful watch, and uh, so the guy, I, I can't remember his name right now, but he put it in a shoebox somewhere and kind of, yeah, he knew it was there. He didn't forget about it, but he wasn't wearing it, and it was just around, 
And then uh, years later, I think after Paul had died, um, this whole uh, sort of vintage watch thing started taking off. And he started getting emails from people. Like he got an email from some guy in Japan offering him half a million dollars for the watch. And he's like, what the fuck? How, like, how did he even know I had the watch much half a million dollars for some old watch? Cause on the back it was engraved, like, um, you know, don't, don't drive too fast or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, it was because it, it was when Paul had started racing mm-hmm. that, and she, John Woodward put this inscription on it. Anyway, long story short, he, uh, or shorter, he ends up selling the watch for, I think, like $20 million. Yeah. Because that was the watch that, like, Paul was wearing in commercials and movies and yeah. things. Right? And I know he, I know the story a little. Yeah. I know, okay. I, know, I know everything about Paul Newman. I'm, I'm oh, kind okay. of a bit. Uh, he's my favorite actor. He's my favorite human. Right. All the stories I have heard, I know people that have worked with him, and, and they've been just such... You know, I think the closest thing we have to it is like Tom Hanks right now, you know. Um, well, that, that's what this guy said. He's like, it's all true. He was a. Yeah. Dude. Anyway, this guy sold the watch just to finish the story, yeah. sold the watch, $20 million. And he and Paul's daughter, who this guy he's not with her anymore, but they're still good friends, um, set up a, an environmental fund that wow. that all the money funds environmental projects and the way I know him actually is I did this thing with a guy named um, Kyle Tierman. We did this thing in LA called the Motherfucker Awards. I don't know mm-hmm. if, you, if you heard about this. It was. I think I would have remembered that. <laughs> it was a comedy event, like a, a red carpet event held in LA, uh, where we um, pr- we gave awards to the companies that have done the most to fuck Mother Earth. So we turned the whole thing around, like, congratulations to Coca-Cola for dumping the most You're a motherfucker. You are the motherfucker of the year. And we had trophies. And then we had comedians who would um, play a character that they developed. And they'd come up and accept the award on behalf of the corporations, right? It's like the rat. It's like the Razzies for environmental. Yeah, exactly. Or the Ig Nobel sure. Awards. I don't know if you heard mm-hmm. of those. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the Nell Newman Foundation funded this. Uh, we're one of the major sponsors of the Motherfucker Award. So cool. Yeah. yeah he. Um, so that watch, and I and I do know the story, that was the original Paul Daytona. Paul's watch for Rolex was the Daytona, which is, uh, you know, one of the most sought after uh, Rolexes. I only know that because I went down the road and when I had my first kid, I bought a vintage Rolex, a 78. Um, and then uh, I have a 1955 Rolex, and that's all I have. Those are the only two watches besides this Apple Watch I have, and they're for my sons. So I very I wear them occasionally, but I wanted them. I've always thought it'd be cool that whenever I go, whether it be tomorrow or in ten years or ten thousand, who knows what's going to happen? Um, I uh, that'd be cool that they could wear like the watch, like in the movies. You have your father's watch on. So uh, I have those two, the 55 and the 78, and. Uh, so with Paul, his Daytona was so uh, legendary. It had the leather straps and it, uh, it was his racing one because obviously he used to wear racing and stuff. And I had heard that story and I had heard about that kid. And I remember just thinking that is the most incredible thing because I don't even think Paul would have thought that at the moment. But he is the example. He's been the example for me for a long time. And in, in 
in his biography, in his book, um, which uh, I forget which one that's really incredible. Um, he, he had such an outlook on that acting is a job like anything else. And you go and you do it and you be the best at it and you go home and you have such a respect for it. But once you start getting into the other stuff with it, the unnecessary stuff, the, and once you fall for the trap of it, and the trap is that you are the best, that mm. you are, you're, you are, you're, you're so great and you're better than other people. That's the trap. And it's a lie. And they push that on you. And, and why they push it on you is because eventually people love seeing people go down, right? They build you up to take you down. And when I look at someone like Paul, Paul's the best actor in every movie he's in. But on top of it, he's the best person in everything he's in. Because he had a very rational uh, way of looking at life, yeah. And everybody could say, everybody could say, oh yeah, well of course he did because he was Paul Newman, but he wasn't always Paul Newman, right? He, you know, he was he was living in an apartment in Staten Island by the ferry to try to get jobs and doing all this stuff. He wasn't always Paul Newman, and the thing is, is that I have always said that fame. If you're a dick, you become like a giant dick. If you're a good person, just like innately in you, you might have made mistakes, whatever. But if you're a good person, you really do become a great person. It reveals and you. It reveals you because you have to deflect so much every day. And I can imagine, I've, and I've been around some of the most famous people in the world, and I would never want their life, ever. It is, it's terrible. And I've seen ones that handle it very well. And I've seen ones that handle it very bad. Um, and what happens is, and why this is, and this is a problem I'm having with the podcast, I should say, in, in only two weeks of being out, is that everybody wants famous people on your show. Hmm. Oh, you should get so-and-so and you should get this person. Yeah. But because I know the truth, <laughs> I don't want those people because I know they're not that interesting. Yeah. The truth is they're, they're not connected to the world. They're not connected to the place that most of us exist in. Meaning that they're not dealing with the everyday stuff. Like, you know what I mean? Like on my podcast this week, I have my brother-in-law who's a New York City firefighter who, you know, has to get hosed off in the garage before he goes sleeps in my mom's basement. You know, I want to talk to people who are doing real stuff. Exactly. That's interesting to me. But if yeah. you're going to get somebody who lives in, who has six houses all over the world, who has someone bringing them lattes every day and who is told how great they are, what am I really going to get out of them? They haven't lived in the real world in a very long time. Yeah, the only the only way that's interesting to me is if it's someone, you know, like a Paul Newman, you know, Correct. sort of person who who can talk to the the bizarreness of that kind of life, you know? And admit who, it. And admit it. Admit yeah, it exactly. I mean, I've had people on the podcast. I just, the last episode I just put up actually was with a guy. Uh, you, you mentioned UFC earlier. He was Kimbo Slice's manager. I know Icy Mike. I know Icy you. Mike. You know Icy Mike. Are you kidding me? Of course me? I do. Yeah, they, they're, they're, I just read a, well, I read a script a couple of months ago. They were doing, they were going to do a Kimbo Slice movie. And, ah. And we had mentioned me talking about the role of Icy Mike. Somebody mentioned it. So I, I, I did my research on who he was. Have so you met him? I haven't met him. I've, I've, read, I've read all about him, but I haven't met him. Oh, I'd be happy to introduce you. He's a great guy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And we talked we talked about that. It's like, you know, and I, I said to him, like, okay, here we are. We're sitting in this, you know, $20 million house in Malibu overlooking the Pacific. What the fuck is that like? You know, right. because he wasn't born to that. And he just, it's kind of like your trajectory. He fell into it. You know, he, yeah, well, you can listen to the conversation, but it was all like he, yeah. was a, he had a tennis scholarship to college and, you know, he was living in a house with some girls and the girls needed a guy to drive him to the strip club and blah, blah, blah. Next thing you know, he's like helping to run the biggest porn company in the world. And, you know, crazy. like life is crazy. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to me, fame and beauty and wealth are all the same in that people outside look at them and think it would be so great to have that. But when you get inside those worlds and talk to people who actually do have them, you find that there's a lot of trouble that comes with it that you didn't know mm -hmm. when you're looking at it from outside. Um, yeah. And, Paul and, and Newman, listen, I have, I have friends that are less than broke, under broke. They couldn't be more broke. And they're like, yeah, all right, you could say, well, how about you give me the money and let me let me make that decision, right? Because, and again, I understand that because I was in that same position, right? I've been that person that sees people who have a bunch of money and I'm like, yeah, yeah, how about, how about you let me figure out what it's like to have a private jet and if it makes me miserable or yeah. if I never have to worry about a bill again. But the truth is, you know, I think Jim Carrey is one of the people who said it, like, I wish you could have everything you wanted in the world so you can realize that it's not what you need. Um, you can tell people all day that until you're happy with yourself, it doesn't matter what you have. Right. Um, but a lot of people feel they'd be happy with themselves because we're inundated. We're inundated sure. by what we're supposed to need. And, you know, that's why I get so angry. I just read this article about, you know, um, the gaslighting that's going to come after all this stuff that we're doing, because they're going to be, they're going to be selling us everything. Yeah. That I, we think I saw we need. that article. Yeah. 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 It's a great article. Right. And it was, and it's so true. And it's like, I'm already starting to see, you know, cause I'm aware of that stuff and I'm like, Oh, look at these people. They're just literally like the line in fight club. They're just, you know, pol polishing the brass on the Titanic. Like they don't care. What happened? Did like give us your money because you really need these new set of sneakers. You haven't more sneakers in months, and you know you haven't. And it's like I get it because that's business. But we are convinced that we need so much more, and I have fallen for that hook, line, and sinker in my life, which all of us have at one point or another. You know, we're all uh, a part of this experiment that that is pushed on us enough. But until we separate from that, until we're able to understand that and and again going back to that point of why i have a hard time sitting down with people who if you're a master or something you could be a successful author and still be really interesting because you've embedded into something you could be a successful fighter because you've put in your ten thousand hours and we could talk about fighting and what that life is like and give somebody an opinion with acting it's tough because you're reading someone else's lines and you're becoming this other person. You're not yourself in that moment. So, you know, there's only so much you can talk. Acting is so personal that you really can't talk about acting. That's boring. Hmm. You know, if someone asked me, how did I do that? It's like, I, that's how I just thought about this and I went to this place, but that's not interesting to someone, but yet celebrity culture is what drives hmm everything yeah. it's what makes us buy the cars and what makes us buy the bags and makes us buy you know so this branding 
but I think what what has happened now in in the, in the time we're in now, what we've what we're seeing is I think we're entering the age of authenticity, and I know that word has been overused so much, but I think that we're entering this age of like we see you, we see who you really are, and that doesn't mean people don't have faults. It means that we see what you're pretending to be. Mm-hmm. And 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 that's and that's what a lot of people have gotten away with a lot. And again, what you and I talked about on our podcast was when you did theory was um I had such a hard time doing this because in my dream when I got into this you became a character and no one knew who you were. It's the definition of a character actor. If you know me, you're not going to believe me. But no one cares about that. That that's that's what that's what threw me off. I didn't know that. Yeah, it hit me like a hammer when I saw that. Where I was like, "Wait, they don't care who's the best actor; they care about who's the most popular." Oh, hmm. that seems counterintuitive. But again, there are still people that do. I'm not saying all. I'm just saying that it swung the other way, where it used to be 85 percent about the acting and 15 percent about the person. Yeah. Now it's now it's eighty five percent about the person, mm-hmm. and don't worry so much about the acting. They just got to be serviceable. You know the story about the graduate, how it was cast. I don't. I I, I would love to hear it. So it was the role was written for Robert Redford or someone like him, right? Because it's all about California, right? So it's a, yeah. a beach boy, a blonde, tall, super good looking, whatever, and. um Dustin Hoffman got, you know, his agent got him an audition, whatever, but it was, you know, just going through the motions. There's no way this little Jewish dude's going to get this role, but what the hell, maybe they'll think of him for something else, whatever. And uh, he went in and he read for the part. And I think it was, uh, who was the the comic writer who just died recently? He played the bellhop. Um, yeah. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yes, I do. So he get he, it wrong. He was one of the, the screenwriters and I think a producer. Yeah. Um, and after Dustin Hoffman read, they looked at each other and they're like, we have to rewrite this for him. It's like, he's so, wow. he's he's him. We didn't even realize we wrote the damn thing and we didn't know who we, didn't we were it. writing it for. We didn't see it. Of that, and that, happens, that happens a lot. Um, yeah. You get on, you you'll, that'll happen mid-movie sometimes. It's happened to me recently where you go in and, you start being that. This is why I love working with writer directors. Like I like working with someone that's vertically integrated in the thought process. So, mm-hmm. so for me, um, if I'm working with a director who wrote it, he really knew exactly where this was coming from, yeah. which again, you and I spoke about, like when I hear books on tape on audible, I want to hear it from the person that wrote it because they know where the hills and valleys are. Yeah. So it's the same thing with a writer director. And what will happen with a good writer-director is as you form your relationship and as they see your physical movement, the way you act, you'll start to see things change. And they might rewrite whole scenes or they might, you know, add stuff or they'll do that to kind of fit what you're doing. Yeah. And again, it just happened to me recently. And you see that, especially on a TV show. And that's what happened to me with Sons, where the first three years, I was like this comic relief. I didn't really do anything. And then, you know, I had changed my entire life. Uh, it was right around the time we were speaking about before when I found out my birth father died and all that. I had changed my entire existence as a human in every way. They realized that. 
and then it starts in season four, episode three. My my entire journey as that character really starts, you know, all the way till whenever, not to ruin it. But it's like they saw what I did wow. as me, as Theo, and then it became Juice. And again, I don't know if that ever happens if I don't do it. So so with the graduate story, it's like you you only pray that people aren't so stuck in their beliefs that this is the way it is. Right. And I went through, I went through this recently with a project that I don't think will even get made, but it was this project where what they wanted for this character was basically impossible. And what I mean by that, it was like, he's this ethnicity, but he speaks this language and he's this raised in this place. So he has the influence of Russia and he has, the, and I said, there's, it's impossible. You're not going to find a person like this. Like you have to, you have to concede on some one of these things that you have for this person because you're basically looking for a unicorn. But they were so stuck in that's what they wanted. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, Bruce Lee says, you know, you got to be like water, right? You know, you have to be if you're not like that in life and even in your own art, if you're not able to pivot and you're not able to see other things, some of the best creativity in the world. Hey, listen, you just said Dustin Hoffman. One of the most famous lines in movie history wasn't even supposed to happen, which is I'm walking here. I'm walking here. here, right. Yeah, exactly. right. That that that, that, that cab driver yeah. blew, did not want to wait in the lockup anymore. Yeah, yeah. In Midnight Cowboy and literally goes forward and he stays in character because that's what he does because yeah. he's a master. And he says the most famous line in history. That has happened more times than you can imagine in films. Yeah. and And I think that you need to let there be air for improv in life, in in films, in writing, in in as a parent. You know, you can't just be like, this is this, and they go to bed at this time because you might have just missed the greatest moment with your son ever. Yeah. If he just wants to stay up that extra half hour. So that's a really uh that's so great to hear on such an incredible movie, The Graduate. And uh, and you know, again. It's it, what we're getting to because of lack of communication. We're getting to places where people are like putting down their their sword and saying like, "No, it's my way." Right. And because they don't hear from anyone else. Yeah, yeah. You know, a recent example of that. You probably know about this in uh, Django Unchained. Yeah. Have you seen that film? You know what? It's funny. Here's what's crazy. I'm a giant Tarantino fan. Uh -huh. And there's only there's only um one Tarantino movie I haven't seen. And that's and it. Django. <laughs> and I it's it's so weird. I thought about this the other day because I thought I hadn't seen Jackie Brown and I realized I had. Um and I seen now Once Upon a Time in Hollywood probably like five times. And I wanted to remember. I said, have I seen, it's almost like Scorsese. The only Scorsese movie I haven't seen is Shutter Island. You know, it's just, I just haven't, I don't know why. And Django, whatever it was, I was, whether I was filming or whatever was happening, it was just one of those things I missed. And Jamie Foxx is probably in my top five of actors and, and, and people in this world. Cause he was so amazing to me when I was a waiter and a busboy, And then mm. just also, he's so incredibly talented. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and I've done, and Leo, I just think is, is the goat. I, I mean, I just think that there's nobody. Oh, that was weird. Um, I didn't realize that phones can ring while we're doing this. Look uh -huh. at this. It's, it's live. Um, 
So I, uh, I, I am going to go back now, and I'm so glad you just brought it up. But no, I haven't seen it, so don't ruin it, because now I've just decided I'm going to give Breaking Bad a pause. And I'm going to go watch that tonight. Well, I won't ruin it, but there is a scene, I, I, and I, I think it'll only enrich the scene for you, but there's a scene where Leo, they're at dinner, and uh, Leo is really pissed off, and he slams his hand on the table, and he shatters a glass, and his hand is bleeding. That happened on set. That was not intentional. And he Apocalypse stays now. in character. Exactly. Yeah. He stays in Same character, blood all over the place. And he mm-hmm. continues, just gives his little monologue. It's fucking so powerful. So beautiful. So Be- I tell, I, I tell yeah. young actors that all the time. And, and, you know, I tell them now because I mentor a, a bunch of young actors. Now I say, whatever you do, keep going. Don't mm-hmm. just don't stop. Right. Because I've been in scenes with actors who don't have the tenure in the business and we'll be in it and we're working and we're going and we're in it. And I always, and I know writers hate to say, I, I say some things that are never in the scene. I just say things all the time, especially when the camera is not on me to, to draw emotion from this other person. Mm. And I'll see an actor, a young actor, if they're not ready, they'll say, I think he said the wrong line. I'm like, no, 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 stop, stop. Don't do that. Like we're, we're here, we're in it. Yeah. And they ruin the entire take. And um, so, so that's such a huge thing to not do. um, If anybody's listening to this, it's the same in porn, by the way, just keep going. Yeah, of course. Just keep going. going. (laughs) Even if it doesn't finish. We'll, we'll, we'll add that in in post, man. That's right. That's right. All right. I just want, I got to let you go. I could go on all day with you, but a couple other uh, movie, just, I love talking about movies with people who love them as much as I do. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, are you into the big Lebowski? Of course. Who isn't? And you know the tar- the Torturo story of how Jesus Quintana was invented? No, but I did see that there was a movie. He yeah, just they're did. doing like a movie. As the carry, it's out. It's out now. Oh, it's out already? It's oh. out now. Yeah, it's oh. on demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, but no, please tell what me. What happened was so he had done other films with the Coen brothers, right? A yes. bunch of them. And yeah. so he was hanging out with them and they were like, yeah, we're working on this movie. It's going to be really great. We're super into it. And we'd love to have you in the movie, but we just don't see a character that's right for you. So here's the screenplay, go read it. And if you can figure out a way to insert yourself into this, let us know. So Torturo came up with the character and inserted it into the bowling alley. The whole thing came out. I just love that. I mean, as a, you know, being, being able to make a living as a writer is a huge, uh, you know, I'm so grateful. Right. But it's lonely. I, what I love about what you do and what those guys are doing is that, you know, the, the working together with really smart people who are creative and open to something like that, that must just be so fucking great. You know, that's, that's why your story about the guy calling you and saying like, dude, I don't know. I want you in this. I don't have a character for you. Like that reminded me, it's like, that's what I love. That's how real genius operates you know being open. yeah it just happened to me it just happened to me on you know on the biggest film that i've ever done that's coming out this year you know and, and i got to work with just one of one of the best people i've ever worked with this you know uh, director zach snyder and, and him and i just had this thing where he i was like i was doing the craziest things you could possibly do as a character and i'd go up to him and go um you okay with this you want to and he goes yeah yeah do 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 do, do more of that 
right? Do that, do that. And then do, just do something completely wild. Like, you know, whatever. And we had this like shorthand, <clears throat> excuse me. We had this shorthand that it was like, now all of a sudden, like I'm going to my chair or going, you know, between takes and going to like hide and be like, oh man, what could I do here? Oh, you know, it'd be funny if I do this or if I do that, or, you know, it'd be really creepy if I do this. And like, then I'd show it to him because he's such an anomaly. He films the movies. He's the director and he writes them and he's does it all. And he's just, you know, here it is on these hundred million dollar movies and he's doing everything. And, um, and I was just, it was the most fun I've ever had in a character because we're working together. Yeah. Because exactly. I ha- I I have been in those other ones that feel like a writing situation where it's like, turn your head, look this way, say this, don't miss an end and a the. Yeah. Stay okay. within this boundary. And you're like, what am I a mannequin or am I, you know, yeah. again, so yeah. but some people have a vision that they don't want you to mess with. And yeah. you gotta respect it, I guess. Theo, I got to end this because I just realized I was supposed to start doing something two minutes ago. Get out of here. here. Uh, My kids are about to get up. Yeah. Hey, thank you, dude. This has been so good. I I mean, I'm going to apologize to the person I was supposed to connect with two minutes ago. Blame me. But I'm going to tell him you're so fucking brilliant. I lost track of time. (laughs) I'll talk to you soon, brother. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. Thanks, Theo. All right. I uh, hope you enjoyed that conversation. I obviously did. Uh, one of the great privileges of this gig I'm doing here with this podcast is um, the opportunity to meet people like that and uh, just fucking just crack it open and, and hang out. Of course, you know, I'd much prefer to do it in person, but these days we we make the best of what we have. And none of that would be possible if you weren't listening to this and um, you know, writing reviews on iTunes and um, some of you send in some money and uh, just supporting the podcast, however, is comfortable and, and uh, possible for you. Uh, so thank you very much for that opportunity, this opportunity. Uh, once again, this episode is brought to you by Kettle and Fire. Check them out, kettleandfire.com forward slash Chris Ryan. Use the code Chris at checkout and you get 15% off your order. Healthy, delicious and uh ethical so what else can you ask for that's about as good as it gets kettleandfire.com thanks for listening uh that was theo rossi make sure you check out his podcast he's got some amazing guests uh the dude is totally hooked up to that sort of nexus of uh you know actors and and hollywood folks but people who are also really smart and really deep and not taken in by the bullshit the la bullshit I, I admire those people as you know all right i'll talk to you again next time thanks for listening bye okay mom uh, tell people what they can order from the garage okay in our cottage garage we have lots and lots of t-shirts sex at dawn civilized to death anthropology Tangentially speaking, paleo-modern, and talking out of my ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies, or koozies, or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. 
He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say <laughs> When everyone we've ever known Is headed for a headstone I don't wanna give the end away But we're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day We're gonna die one day So baby, what's a big deal? If you wanna be free, say what you wanna feel. Spend the night with me. I'm gonna take you up in my arms. And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.